The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The Japanese city of Nagasaki is probably best known for being the target of the world's second ever nuclear attack in August 1945. But far fewer people will know that the city was also home to hundreds of Allied prisoners of war, forcibly put to work to support the Japanese war economy. John Willis's book Nagasaki delves into the incredible and largely forgotten story of the POWs who survived the brutal camps in the Far East. He told Spencer Miz and Moore about how they were transported to the Japanese mainland on so-called hell ships and later witnessed a bomb that would help bring the Second World War to an end. Now, John, as the title of your book acknowledges, this really is a forgotten story, isn't it? Very few people, it seems to me, are aware that there were Allied POWs incarcerated on the Japanese mainland, let alone in Nagasaki. So how did you come across this story? I I was completely flabbergasted. I knew quite a lot about Japan. I'd spent some time there. I'd been to Hiroshima, um, but I had absolutely no idea at all uh, that there were Allied prisoners of war until uh, many years ago I met one of them. I met um, a man called Ron Breyer, a Yorkshireman from, from near Harrogate, uh, who survived the, the second atomic weapon, the most powerful bomb ever dropped by man. And I couldn't resist telling his story, which I did for a TV programme. And then uh, recently, I thought, you know, the, this would make a book. We need to know more. I've got his story. But there were so many others there that I wanted to to write a, a, a rounded, complete uh, picture of what it was like on the ground when the bomb dropped. How did you go about researching the book? And what sources did you use? I mean, would I be right in saying it was a, a mixture of interviews, um, of talking to survivors' families, of, of, of diaries as well? It, it was a mixture of things. There's, it, inevitably, there's not much written down about this. It's probably why the story's been... Uh, invisible for so many decades um, because it was very dangerous to to keep a diary um, or to keep notes. Uh, You'd get beaten up or or sometimes even worse. So there are examples, for example, one prisoner wrote his diary in Irish, an Irish prisoner, so that if they were, no one would understand them. Others, knowing they were dangerous, buried diaries in graves of other prisoners and then after the war, they were then uh, collected again. So it was a dangerous process. So I, I, But I managed to get hold of these diaries. There have been in recent years quite a, a, an outpouring, I think, as, uh, as the survivors get older or, or start to die off, that their children have been wanting to tell this story. So on the internet, there's unpublished or self-published little memoirs or pamphlets. And then I had quite a lot of material from my television documentary I made several years ago that uh, hadn't seen the light of day, interviews with quite a lot of prisoners, uh, notes that they'd made. So I had a mixture of different sources. 
Could you tell us a little bit more about Ron Breyer himself? I mean, how did he react to sort of trawling over all these old memories when you were going through them all those years ago? Well, I think Ron was an extraordinary character. Uh, he was hardwired in many ways to survive. He was one of 10 children, um, brought up in rural poverty outside Harrogate. So he was used to poaching and having sharp elbows to make sure he had enough to eat. And yet he was super intelligent, very intelligent. So he went to the local grammar school and was selected by the RAF for special training. So he had lots of the qualities that you needed to survive. And he was an engineer, which is very useful in terms of making things and making making and mending when you're in a, a prison of war camp. And I think he kept it all very buried. Some, some, of, some of the prisoners, a lot of them had nightmares and had a pretty terrible time when they came home. Ron just shut it all down. And then I went back to Nagasaki with him. And I think it just all came flooding back. He stood on the balcony of his hotel at four in the morning, looked down on a city that's now bustling and busy and rebuilt, but had just been wiped from the face of the earth before. And I think he thought about all the people he knew who died in Japanese hands and uh, all the emotion came flooding out. And he said, I I didn't think that would ever happen to me again. I never thought that would happen, but it did. And had he told his family much about his experiences? What was their reaction? I think he, he had told his family about his experiences bit by bit. And it's quite a lot of prisoners who survived the Nagasaki bomb didn't say much to their family or only said it really late in life when the kids were grown up and were adult, when perhaps they'd reached retirement age themselves. And they were starting to kind of piece together the jigsaw puzzle of their experiences. And this was such a profound experience to have. So I think that he had told them a fair amount, but it was really only when he was in my television documentary that they started to see the fuller picture. So one of the first questions that popped into my head when I when I saw your book is, what were all these Allied POWs doing in the Nagasaki area at, at the climax of the Second World War? So, I mean, yeah, wh- why had they been taken there? Well, as, as the war went on... Um, the Japanese became short of manpower or person power in their factories. Um, their men were all away fighting the war or had been killed or imprisoned. Uh, and so they had on tap a ready-made but also dispensable workforce in terms of allied prisoners of war. So um, thousands of them were shipped to Japan. And those in Nag- Nagasaki was a yeah, a key uh, military industrial uh, complex. Uh, it was run largely by Mitsubishi, and uh, who made torpedoes, aeroplanes, ships. So they worked in, the, a lot of them worked in the shipyards. So Ron Breyer, for example, worked in the shipyards as a riveter. He had no training um, and just picked it up in a couple of days. It was a quite a heavy-duty job. Others worked in foundries, um, making weapons. So basically, it was their job to support the Japanese military effort. Um, although, if they could, they would find little minor acts of sabotage just to slow things down. Right. Can you give us a couple of examples of those, please? Yes. Um, for example, um, in the shipyards, they would there were obviously guards and military police watching them. So it was quite tricky things, but they would 
drop rivets um, into the water or not put the rivets in properly, that sort of thing, just small things. But if several people did it, and even if it didn't really work, it made them feel better. It made them feel that they were fighting the war. It made people feel they weren't passive but active. Now, John, just rewind a little bit. Your book doesn't just chronicle the POW's experiences in Nagasaki. It also tells the story of their capture by Japanese uh, forces, their experiences in camps all over the Far East. And so that includes the horrors of those camps or working on uh, the River Kwai Railway. Why did you decide to adopt that approach to kind of take to look at the bigger picture instead of just focusing on Nagasaki? A couple of reasons. One was that um, Nagasaki was just the the climax of their uh, terrible years of endurance. So it wasn't just if you saw it just as one event, you wouldn't understand that for two and a half, three years before they'd been malnourished they'd been ill they'd been beaten and badly treated while working in appalling conditions as you say on the river Kwai railway or elsewhere so i felt that it it gave a context so you understood much more how they'd got there and how they'd survived that far now on that you mean you you relate some pretty grim episodes from the Allied collapse in the Far East. Just to cite one example, there's um, an Australian soldier called Fred Airy, who, having survived a a firing squad, was forced to play dead in a creek in Singapore while Japanese troops moved around shooting wounded POWs. You've also got an example of nurses being forced to walk into the sea before before being shot. I mean, did you get a sense in your research of just how shocked and discombobulated, not just Allied troops, but also Allied commanders were by what was happening on the ground at the time? Well, I think that uh, we probably, the Allies probably had an expectation that the Geneva Convention um, on Prisoners of War, conventions on prisoners of war, would be upheld. The Japanese had approved it, but never signed it. So... I think that they expected more civilised treatment than they actually got. On the other hand, uh, we know that the Japanese um, in in uh, in China had already uh, committed some pretty horrific offences. So um, the cultural differences, I think, between the two, the, the Allies and the Japanese was huge. That language, culture, history, I think it was really difficult for either side to understand each other. Um, and I, I think too, probably in the early, in the early days of capture, the rules were all fuzzy. In places like Java, it was a long way from Tokyo where the rules about prisoners of war were being written. So the commander on the ground, who might not be at the top level um, in his profession, otherwise he'd be fighting, not guarding, had quite a lot of room for manoeuvre. And some behaved okay, and some behaved absolutely appallingly and committed the terrible acts of brutality. Sean, I, I wonder if you could introduce us to some of the other main characters and um, POWs in your book. I mean, could we could we talk about Aidan McCarthy? Because it's, he was, a, am I right in saying, an RAF doctor? And it sounds like he'd had a pretty, some pretty extraordinary experiences in the war even before he got to the Far East. Is that is that correct? Correct. I think um, uh, Aidan was a, another good example. And I, I, I was lucky enough to spend some time with his two daughters. And um, he came from from Ireland, um, but he joined up uh, the RAF 
um, was a doctor in the RAF, and uh, even before um, captivity, he'd won a medal um, for rescuing with another person. Uh, a, a Wellington bomber crashed at his RAF base at Honington um, uh, on this kind of Suffolk-Norfolk border, and he, as a doctor and one of the other uh, servicemen, just rushed in despite the flames, despite the fact that there was a risk of explosion, and pulled them free. So he was a pretty brave uh, person by any standards. He was also at Dunkirk. So we, he, he had already lived through some pretty perilous moments before he got to the Far East. But he was in an unusual position because as a doctor, you weren't, all, you weren't working in the shipyards necessarily or always in the front line. Um, you were operating basically with a razor blade and a couple of handmade tools and no medicines. You were trying to save people's lives. Um, so his life was different. But towards the end, he was the senior officer in the camp in Nagasaki. And I remember his daughters telling me that if one of his men um, broke a rule, they were beaten. And he, as the senior officer, would get beaten as well. So um, he was beaten pretty regularly while in Nagasaki. And also wanted to mention somebody called Alan Chick. Now, I've got a copy of the book in front of me, and I believe he's a person on the left-hand side of the cover. And the, he looks impossibly young from that picture. What were his experiences while, while in Nagasaki? The Australians, it's really interesting that this book, which doesn't come out in Australia yet, but is already being talked about. I had a message from someone the other day. They've just bought 15 copies of the book because what they've said is that it tells us, I knew about my dad, but this tells the complete picture. Now I see it in the round. and I see that he wasn't the only one. And the British, I think, were still quite hierarchical in terms of officers and, and other ranks. The Australians, I think, was much flatter. The officers, some were good, some were not so good, but they were much more, much closer to the men. And the Australians uh, are great, um, you know, believe in mateship, comradeship, friendship, and um, they stuck together, I think, in a little group. Um, Alan Schick was a Tasmanian. Um, as you say, he looks uh, very young in that picture, fabulous um, slouch, uh, Aussie bush hat and uh, a slight lack of teeth. Uh, he looks great. And he survived. He was pretty lucky. The bomb um, went off. He was, um, uh, he was on a building which was unusual. Most of them were inside the buildings where it was, and he was blown off the building, but survived. He went out of the camp. The camp had been completely destroyed. There was nothing left. And quite nearby was um, uh, a camp where Chinese workers um, lived, and he found most of those dead. But um, Alan then, with a group of other Australians, um, found a horse and cart, and it was very. It seemed very strange to me that people are dead, people are wounded, burnt, blistered, there's no buildings apart from a few skeletal structures, and there's a horse and cart waiting like a taxi on a rank for them, um, and Alan and one of the others, um, Eric Hooper, um, were both country boys, so they knew how to deal with a horse, so they put the, their injured, the Australian injured, on the back of the horse, and they they disappeared off to the edge of town and then walked up to the mountains, and what was interesting about Alan is that at the end of the war, he went back. He's the only one, more or less, well, there must be more, but about the only one I found who went back to Japan as part of the Allied occupying forces. 
So he stayed in the conflict. He didn't say, this is enough, I've seen a bomb. He went back. He married a Japanese woman. They went back to live in Australia, uh, were very happy, and Alan reached the grand old age of 93. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Ron Brower, the Yorkshireman, was nearly killed by a pallet of American chewing gum. And he said, I don't think it was written that I would escape the atomic weapon only to be killed by um, a, a pallet of chewing gum. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. Did you get a sense that that, that that sense of mateship that those Australian troops have, was that, did that help them, you know, survive these extraordinary, terrible experiences? I think that obviously mateship is a, an Australian concept, but the British or the Dutch or the Americans also had groups of friends. And I'm sure that having a friend was absolutely critical in this, that if there was two of you, um, if one was ill, then the other could help them through over that crisis and the other way around. Um, if one is trying to steal some food from the Japanese cookhouse, the other can be on the lookout um, so there was mutual support, um, and I think it was really, really important. But it was particularly um, powerful, I think, uh, with the Australians. Now, one of the most vivid sections of the book is your description of the so-called hell ships, which took Allied POWs to mainland Japan. I mean, you, you relate the anecdote of one Japanese vessel, the... Tamahohu Maru, which was uh, torpedoed by American submarines just outside Nagasaki. Can you elaborate on that a li little bit more? Tell us what was going on there. Well, I, I think that um, I'd heard you know, the phrase hell ships, but didn't really know all that much about it. And I think this is one of the most extraordinary moments in the book and in, in this whole story, um, because the drama of it and the horror of it are truly incredible. So you imagine these men have survived Java, Singapore, um, the building the River Kwai Railway, which you know was twenty percent people died. It was it was pretty um, horrific conditions, and they think that's the worst they've ever seen. And they're loaded into the holds of these ancient ships, rusty old hulks, and they were so crowded that you couldn't lie down; you had to sit up. And one of them said that. When you moved, you all had to move at the same time like jelly. Um, that was the only way that you could move. And they were in little convoys with um, uh, oil tankers mainly. So I think that they were seen as legitimate targets because oil obviously drove the Japanese military uh, and they were short of oil. So um, uh, sinking an oil tanker was, was, was important. So they were at risk, particularly as the war went on, of a torpedo attack. 
And that's exactly what happened to the Tamahoko uh, Maru. It was hit by um, an American torpedo. They were just outside Nagasaki. They were just starting to relax. They were allowed on deck for the first time. They were singing Waltzing Matilda and, uh, you know, Vera Lynn songs. And the, the crew were so were pleased to be safe and home. And then the torpedo hit. And um, Aidan McCarthy, who you mentioned before, the Irish doctor, was really lucky. He was in a row of uh, officers, um, you know, sleeping, uh, and he found a rat in his bed. And so he was fighting the rat off. And so he was awake. And when the torpedo hit, which was around midnight, he was fine. He survived. And all the, the other officers next to him had, had all died, were all, were all killed at that moment. He was blown out into the water. And um, uh, he was a very strong swimmer from having been brought up on the coast of, of Southern Ireland. And um, you know, he managed to managed to survive, and they survived basically by hanging on to bits of wood, old rafts, toilets, any any bit of debris they could possibly um, find. They clung on to, um, and uh, and I think two hundred two hundred and twelve of them survived and finished up in a camp in Nagasaki. Okay, so you've got these prisoners, allied prisoners, in in and around Nagasaki at the end of the war. I mean, from your research, did you get any idea of how aware the POWs were of what was happening in the wider world? Did they were they aware that the tide of war had turned decisively against the Japanese? I, I think that one of the things that they didn't have, which is partly why I call the book or subtitle it "Forgotten Prisoners," that they didn't really have any idea what was going on. Even on the River Kwai Railway, they had illegal ra- illicit radios, or a few of them, which enabled them to t- tune into the BBC or elsewhere. In Nagasaki, that was not possible. So they were completely starved of information. Um, they might just get a, a scrap of newspaper they might find drifting around the dockyard or on their walk to the dockyard in Japanese, and they try to make sense of it. But I think they began to sense that things, they had no idea about VE Day, they didn't know about Hiroshima, but suddenly American planes started flying over the city and there was a bombing run eight days before the nuclear bomb was dropped where Nagasaki was quite badly hit. And I think they realised that at that point the tide had had turned to see the, the sound of the sound of an American bomber over the city was frightening in one way, but um, of course um, induced a tremendous amount of hope in another. And did Allied commanders know that the POWs were there? I think that it seems impossible to me that they didn't know for two reasons. One was that there is some intelligence that Japanese prisoners of war said, "Oh." 200 pale men seen, white men seen working in dockyard, probably POW. So there's scraps scraps of, of that. But more important, when some of the hell ships were torpedoed, American submarines were part of the rescue. Of the, so they torpedoed, killed um, several hundred people, and then rescued um, them. So those men, where were they going? Well, they were going to the Japanese mainland to work in... In, in military industries, what cities? Well, Nagasaki would be very high up the list for that. So I think intelligence would have to be pretty um, uh, dense not to have worked out that Nagasaki was 
in, in all likelihood, a place where there was going to be Allied prisoners of war. Um, and of course, Nagasaki wasn't the target of the bomb originally. So it might be that there was one of the reasons why Nagasaki wasn't higher up the list of targets. It was a secondary target was that they knew they were Allied prisoners of war. So you can't be 100% sure, but you can be 95% sure. And what did the POW say about the moment that the atomic bomb was dropped on Nagasaki? I mean, there must be some pretty vivid descriptions of that of, of, of that moment. Well, of course, you know they didn't know what a they didn't know what a nuclear weapon was. They hadn't heard about Hiroshima, as I said. So, you know, all of a sudden, Ron Breyer, the Yorkshire we talked about earlier, was lucky. He was mending a bomb shelter, and the bomb shelter just collapsed on top of him he said it was a kind of liquid light intense no uh, and then a vibration and a kind of roar uh, people described as being like a you know a thousand um, photographers flares people described as a marine searchlights and uh, i think it was quite vivid and they thought this is the end of the world I, i'm dead this is this is it and when they came to or they struggled out of the rubble of the buildings they were in one of them said it was as if Nagasaki had been swept aside by a broom. There was nothing there. All they could see was uh, Ron got up and suddenly saw about a hundred Japanese civilians and workers running like crazy animals. Didn't look at him, but they just ran past him uh, on fire, blistered arms. Um, and he said they were like animals in a hunt, just trying to escape um, from, from death. So um, I think it was immediately very, very vivid. And um, some of them a little further away saw the mushroom cloud, so saw the, you know, the angry foam of white and brown and black and yellow um, in, in the cloud as well. And again, they thought, what, what is this? They had no idea that it was a nuclear weapon. And what did this event mean to them in the short term? Did it mean instant liberation? It didn't mean instant liberation, it meant liberation because they f were certain, and there's a lot of evidence to support this, both anecdotal and you know, in the records, that the Japanese fully intended that if there was an Allied invasion of the homeland, of the Japanese homeland, that the prisoners of war would be killed. Um, pits were being dug, uh, tunnels were being um, opened up. So they all felt sure that they wanted to be liberated, but they felt if they were liberated, that would probably be the end for them. So um, there was an immediate uh, sense of relief and then uncertainty because after a few hours, more Japanese troops arrived mysteriously from somewhere with some, from somewhere inland, presumably with some rice. And they were sent to another camp on the edge of Nagasaki. So away probably from you know, radioactive, um, uh, uh, the radioactive materials, but further away, several miles out, out of Nagasaki. So they were, they were held there until, um, the Japanese surrendered. So the Japanese didn't surrender, um, straight away, but it took them a few days for that to happen. And then they were on their own. They had to work out, well, how do we feed ourselves? How do we guard ourselves? How do we get home? Do we just wait for the Americans? An American food drop started. So for the first time for nearly four years, they started um, uh, having, you know, butter and bacon and biscuits and uh, huge pallets and oil drums of food were dropped from the sky. And the men just wept tears when they saw us. They couldn't believe it. Um, but it was, it, was, it was quite dangerous. Ron Breyer, the Yorkshireman, was nearly killed by a pallet of American chewing gum. 
And he said, I don't think it was written that I would escape the atomic weapon only to be killed by um, uh, a pallet of chewing gum. That's extraordinary. I mean, they've been to hell and back. What kind of impact did the terrible things that they'd experienced have on them over the longer term? I mean, was this something they could ever come to terms with from, from your experience of doing the interviews and, and, and reading their diaries? I think that some of them did. I mean, some of them, I think, have found ways of coming to terms with it. And those ways might be to embrace normality as much as possible and to try to forget about it. But I would say that the overwhelming evidence is that the vast majority of prisoners of war of the Japanese had nightmares for many, many years afterwards, um, would have what now would be called post-traumatic stress disorder, that some of them wouldn't have Japanese cars, Japanese TV sets. Some of them found it really difficult in terms of their relationships when they came home because they went away as, you know, like, you know, bright-eyed 19-year-olds or 20-year-olds and came back at 24 or 25 having endured all this and seen horrors that they would never um, uh, imagine. How do you talk about it? Do you talk about it? So I think that there was... Um, a lot of trauma in in relationships. I think some of them found it quite difficult to relate to their children because the children would say, is that my daddy? That's not what the picture was like. And they'd never seen their children before. So um, that's, uh, uh, I think that was difficult uh, um, uh, for people. So I think the scars ran quite deeply. As one of the sons said to me, my dad survived the nuclear weapon in Nagasaki, so he won the war, but he was so unhappy when he got home that he lost the peace. And that's a terrible irony, to survive to survive all this and then only find that for the rest of your life you're unhappy because you're carrying these the burden of it all. And what kind of impact did meeting these men and their families have on you? Um, that's an interesting question. I think that um, if, like me, you've you know spent a lot of years making television documentaries, occasionally you you have an experience. It's very privileged. You you enter into other people's lives. They allow you in, and to be have an insight into this incredible and, as I say, forgotten and invisible experience in Nagasaki. Um, I, I found very um, uh, profound. Uh, you know, it really made me think about all the issues. It made me think about the men. I thought they were extraordinary. Um, and it was really only when I less involved in television and started to write books, this is the third one I've written in the last few years, that I went back to this and realised this was a story that needed amplification and retelling. That was John Willis. Nagasaki, The Forgotten Prisoners, is out now, published by Mensch. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.